Well, good morning. morning. I'm glad you guys are here today. And everything works so far. And we're not going to jinx it. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. We had a whirlwind this this week. We have this computer that is this magical computer that I promise is a real one that exists in the real world that is coming. And it was supposed to be here the 15th in time for Christmas. And then all of a sudden it got delayed to the 28th. And we're like, ah. So our session prayed on Thursday that it might come sooner. And as I'm driving home from session late at night, I got an update from Apple that said, it has been moved to the 22nd. So if you ever wonder, does the Lord listen to prayer, as we talked about a few weeks ago, the Lord does listen to prayer, even in the minute, silly things of life. Uh, I have a question for you, and you don't shout it out, because I don't want to cause like political unrest, but just think to yourself, who is your favorite president of all time? There's always one that like shouts it out anyway, usually, so... But who is that person that you think back, maybe you've been alive for a long time, maybe you're just a history buff and you've studied the various presidents. Most of us have that one that we go, you know, when that person was president, the world was just a better place. Everything's just downhill from here, you know. And, and we have these people in our lives. If we, only, if we had this leader, and we, we do this. We, we have leaders that we look to. And I find this odd because a Gallup poll that was done just in September of this year, looked at the, the satisfaction rating, essentially, like the level of faith that people have in government. And this is apolitical, this is not some political message, but just how much faith do you have in the government? And about 62% for legislative branch, and about 56% for the executive branch expressed that they have either very little to absolutely no faith whatsoever in the government. So we as a, as a country actually have, via a poll, virtually no faith in the actual government that is operating at any given point in time. But man, when election time comes around, you wouldn't think it, would you? Like, we act as if we are electing the new messiah of the world when there's politics. And every, every politician, it doesn't matter, Democrat, Republican, Green Party, whatever it is, right? They will, they will essentially elevate themselves or pay other people to elevate for them themselves to this massive messiah complex. You would think that just by casting one little circle, you could fix everything wrong in our country today, right around every two to four years, right? Wouldn't it be great if it was that easy? Like, just, just, just choose A, and all of our problems magically go away. Why do we do this? Why do we put so much faith in election season in our, in our people, only then to turn around and just express that once they're actually in office, we have no faith? You would think after years and years of this silly cycle, we would learn to just have a measured temperament when we go to the polls, wouldn't you? But no, every year we do the same thing over and over again. And then there's that person that voted for the one that you didn't vote for, and so they were a Christmas card recipient for you last year, but they're not this year because they voted for, right? It's this crazy thing that we do. And, and here's the thing. Why do we do this? It is because it is built. It is built into us as a result of the fall. Right? We are made originally to not be this way. But because we are living in a sinful world and we are sinful people, we are what John Calvin, I, I mentioned this a little bit last week, what John Calvin calls our hearts are a factory of idols. Because you are a sinner, your natural proclivity is to manufacture idols and things to worship and look to and trust in other than God. Like, if you don't try otherwise, or if the Spirit miraculously through Christ does not enable you to do otherwise, that's, this is what you will naturally do. 
you will naturally look for other things to worship. Right? A few weeks ago with Moses, we talked about the golden calf, and that's the extreme example. But we all have our little golden cows in our lives. It might be a certain activity. It might be your kid's athletics. It might be your money, all these things. It might be a very specific person. Right? But we all do this. We are designed in the world of sin and bent on manufacturing idols. And it's always been this way since Adam and Eve sinned for the first time. In Israel, in ancient Israel, we saw this expressed through the various styles of leadership, right? We see that the Israelites are just looking for people, right? So when Moses came around, they looked to him. And we talked about how in the New Testament, Moses was this hailed guy, even though he was a flawed human being, right? We worked through these people, and eventually, we go through these various phases of leadership. We go through, through them, we go through the prophets, and we go through the, well, we go through the judges first, right? We have this cycle where there's this judge that comes in that delivers the people and everything is great, and then that judge dies and the people start to walk away from God and do whatever was right in their own eyes, right? And then the Lord gives them over to some group and they are distraught and they call out for another leader and this new leader comes and everything is great and then that leader dies. And like the book of Judges is just this crazy cycle. As a matter of fact, next year we're going to be spending about five or six weeks working through the book of Judges. It'll be an interesting time. But we'll see that it's this cyclical nature where over and over again things don't work out. And so eventually we get to the point where the people, they want a king. They're finally done, right? Samuel has been leading them and they get to this point where they're like, we are over it. If you, Lord, just give us a king. And here's what God says. And all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old. That's a great thing to hear as a leader. Hey, guy who has led us valiantly, you're old. And your sons don't walk in your ways. In other words, they're not fit for it either. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Why did the Israelites want a king? Well, everybody else had a king. We want one too. It's, It's literally that petty. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord, I love this, said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. And then he goes on to tell him to go ahead and get them a king. So the Lord acknowledges this isn't good or right for them. This isn't something that should be happening But he relents and he says, you want a king? Great. Here, go get a king. I'll provide you one. And then he provides Saul as the first king of the people of Israel. And Saul is a terrible king. There's very few redeeming things about Saul. And so after some time, the Lord talks about having regretted making Saul king. And we need to address this because there's a few times that the Lord says, I regret having done something. It doesn't mean that the Lord messed up, right? When the Lord allowed Saul to be king, he knew that he would regret it. It was, it was an intentional choice to allow the Israelites to go through a period of time in a certain way, right? He does the same thing when it's in Noah's time frame, and he says, I regret having made these people, right? And he wipes them all off the face of the earth, and he starts with humanity 2.0, right? It's not that he actually regrets in the sense of, wow, I messed up. I shouldn't have done that. 
It's a, it's a, he feels like that was not a good thing, but he, he, he caused it to happen anyway for the sake of the people's education and benefit. And so he regrets having made Saul king, and so the next king is David. And today we're going to talk about David and the kingship. Because David is, is listed as this beautiful, magnificent, upstanding king and citizen of Scripture. And so what are some things we know about David? Well, number one, David is from the tribe of Judah. If you remember in the Old Testament the story of Ruth, right? And Ruth is redeemed. It's the kinsman redeemer by Boaz. Ruth is this widow, this person with no status, no hope, and Boaz redeems her. Well, David is Boaz and Ruth's great-grandson. You can look at the genealogy either in Matthew or some other places, and you can find that the line goes through. It is Boaz, who then has Obed, who then has Jesse, who then has David. And so he's straight from that line, right? When we look at and say, what's the point of Ruth? The word of God's not really talked about all that much. Well, the point of Ruth is to show that even in, in the midst of there seeming no hope, right, there's this, this beautiful redemption that takes place where Boaz redeems this woman who is destitute. And the Lord keeps the line going from Abraham all the way through eventually to get to David. And so we go from there to David. He was a, a youngest of seven. Uh, Jesse had seven kids, and he was the youngest of them all. Um, most of his other kids were kind of muscular, big, burly, the people you'd say, I want to vote for you in a ballot box. David was kind of puny, um, kind of a pretty boy in a way. Not a, lot, not a lot to David. But David was the youngest of seven. David was from Bethlehem. Right? And so if you ever wonder, like, well, in Christmas we talk about Bethlehem. David was from the same place where Jesus ends up being born. That's significant later. Um, and he is called a man after God's own heart in a couple different places. 1 Samuel 13 being the main one. Right? And so he then becomes king after we have Saul pushed out. He actually is anointed king chapters before Saul's reign ends. But it's the secret anointing, right? Samuel goes to Jesse and he has the, the sons parade past him one by one. And this like strapping young lad comes up, you know, son number one. And, and, and Samuel goes, it's God, I'm sure that's the king that you want, God, right? And God says, nope, nope, you know, swipe left. Um, and then he comes, the next one comes in, swipe left, swipe right. And then and, and like, we're out of sons. You're like, really? You don't have anyone left? Well, there's like, there's David, but like David's the weird one, like. He's off in the, sh in, the, in the pastures. He's the shepherd little boy. You're not, you don't want to look at David. All right, well, you got to bring David. David comes by and swipe right. right. All of a sudden, David is it for no merit of his own. Yes, you can say that David, your pastor said David was chosen by Tinder. Um, things I regret when I get home. Just so you know, when I leave um, after Sundays, when I get home, we, we almost always, after we put Graham down for bed, we have a beautiful time where Britta just sits down and does the, did you really say that out loud in the sermon? So, so I, have a, I have a lovely, lovely wife, if you're wondering whose job it is to make sure that I, as the years go on, say less and less silly things from the stage. So I will improve and get better, I promise you. The Lord is sanctifying me every, every day. Right? But, but David is chosen as the king with very little merit, Right? We, we always think of David as, what, the story of David and, and Goliath, right? That somehow he was this crazy, brave guy who, you know, even though he was little, killed the giant. What, what we don't realize is the reason that happened is because the Lord allowed it to happen, right? David wasn't some magnificent genius who took a sling and, like, was battle-trained. The Lord caused him to have victory. If it hadn't been for the Lord, 
David would have gone up, Goliath would have stood across from him and would have gone like this, and David would be dead. That'd be it. The reason that didn't happen is because God caused him to have victory, because the Lord chose him to be king. For no reason other than the Lord said, I want you to be it. And I'm going to raise you up, and I'm going to cause you to have victory, and I'm going to cause you to be effective, and I'm going to make you mine because you are a man after God's own heart. Right? So David is, is kind of built up by the Lord. David was the king that Israel had dreamed of. He was a righteous king. Under him, Israel flourished. As a matter of fact, David is the one who established Jerusalem as the capital city of God's people. Right? The reason we think of Jerusalem as the, as the center, as the hub of God's activity through much of Scripture is because David established that as the city. Because that was the tribe and the area from which he was. And so when he became king, that's what became the center hub of places. And the, the, the people of God under David did really, really well. But David, as we know, was not perfect. He has a couple things that just stain his record of perfection. The first of which is that he takes Bathsheba. In 2 Samuel 11, he's on his roof. He's looking on other roofs. He sees Bathsheba taking a bath. And he asks, who is that? And they said, well, that's, that's, the, that's, you know, that's someone's wife. You don't want to... And he goes, bring her to me. And they have her brought. And she is nobody and he is the king and so who is she to refuse the king right especially in those times and so she lays with David and they have a child together and that becomes problematic because having an affair is one thing having an affair with a child is another and so David is conniving he's not he's not a dumb guy so he goes go where's the husband well he's in battle bring him home and he brings him home and he has him home and he says hey listen I'm going to give you some time off. Why don't you go spend some days just with your wife? You know, you haven't seen her in a while. You know, maybe, you know, light a fire. You know, those kinds of things. And he refuses to do it. Uriah refuses to have any relations with his wife. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even go to his own house. He sleeps on the outside doorstep. And when asked why, he says, well, my men are back out on the field. And they're sleeping in tents. So out of solidarity... I shouldn't have comfort when the people that are under me don't have comfort. Right? He's twice the man that David is in this instance. And so then David tries to get him drunk. He says, well, maybe if he's hammered, he'll go home and stumble home and accidentally fall into his wife's bed. And then, you know, either something will happen or at least they'll think it happened. And when she's pregnant, they'll assume it's his. That was David's plan, just to say, hey, they're just going to think that they had a kid. Right? But even drunk, he doesn't go. And so then David ultimately has him killed. He sends messages to the front of the lines and he says, I want you to put him at the very front of the battle at the most dangerous place and has him killed on purpose. And so we have the stain in the king of David. That's not perfect. We always lift him up. As I've said before, he was an adulterous, lying murderer. But the Lord says, is a man after God's own heart. If you ever feel like you are not good enough, just remember that the Lord called a murderous, lying, adulterer a man after his own heart. And why? Because the Lord is the one who is the one who restores our hearts. Right? 
Let that be a message to you as a total tangent and aside. So still, even though he has this blemish and he messes up, um, David has a, a beautiful way about himself, and he has something that we all ought to learn from. He has this massively repentant heart. See, Nathan, who's the prophet at the time, comes to David and accuses him right, of the things he's done. He says, listen, the Lord is angry with you for this. As a matter of fact, he tells him this parable, this story that's not real, that has a fictional character in it, and David gets really mad at that character and says, well, if that character should die, and then Nathan says, well, you're the character. He goes, oh. And he repents. This is the key to the Christian life, guys. It's not that we don't ever mess up in life. It's that we're willing to surrender to the Lord when we're convicted of our sin, and that we repent and we turn and we walk from the ways. As a matter of fact, David has this beautiful psalm of repentance in Psalm 51 that he tells us. And it's, it's, I'll just give you a little bit of a chunk of it right here. Uh, it's from 51. This is verses 1 through 4 and 10 through 12. This is immediately after. It says it's a psalm of David when confronted by Nathan about his sins. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. This might sound familiar to you. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me and cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Imagine if you were home and realized you were in some kind of sin and this was just the way that you... David's a little more poetic than most of us probably are. But he has a repentant heart. So the Lord tells him that despite his mess, despite his evil, despite his wickedness, despite his mistakes, there will be consequences. The son that they've had ends up dying. Right? And there's all kinds of issues throughout the kingdom that we'll get to in a second afterwards. But the Lord has this beautiful peace in the midst of it. And in 2 Samuel 7, he he declares to David this. This is the covenant he makes with him. He says, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you. who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom You shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his king forever. I will be be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Pardon me. So the question becomes, who's this house? Who's this house going to be that he will build on? Who's this person that is going to be like a son to God? I think we know the answer. It's Jesus. But here's here's the harsh truth, and here's what we have to understand as God's people in in this time. We live on this side of the cross, right? We read passages like David and and the consequences of his actions and his sin, and we read through the rest of the Old Testament, and we read it knowing that Jesus is coming and has come and will come again. The people did not know this at the time. All they had was what they saw in front of them. And so here is what we need to see. The kingdom under David does not last forever. Things go really badly. After David, Solomon becomes king, and Solomon is another great king. And after him, his son Rehoboam becomes king. 
And with Rehoboam, things go downhill. The rest of the Old Testament, the kingdom splits in half. First half dies, shortly after the second half dies. They are overtaken by Assyria and Babylon, respectively. There's exile. The people are brought out. The temple is destroyed. And the people are living under the rule of other empires, seemingly completely dissipated. There is no more king. There is no more rule. There is no more structure. There really is not that much more of a God's people to speak of, so to say. And so if you were somebody around during this time, you would have heard that promise that God made to David about his house and forever. And you would have said, I guess that didn't happen. I guess we're done. And you can read through the minor and major prophets and you can read through the narratives of what happens in exile and you can start to see that the people actually feel this way consistently, right? Most of the remainder of the Old Testament are prophecies about that there will be someone coming and that there is an end to this suffering and that they should remain or come back and return to faith in the one true God and the people are tired and weary and don't want to because they think all hope is lost. I think it's it. All their faith was in the king. And it worked great for two generations. That's it. Maybe you felt that way in our world today, right? I asked you about presidents. Maybe there was two or three sets of people that were in charge, and you're like, things went pretty well. well and then everything just, right? that's what they were feeling. Everything's just to bits now. And we know that that's not what happens right we know that it's different we know that the prophets continue to speak of the one who will come from the line of david and there are prophecies that we are going to read when we gather here on christmas eve that those people were told in the midst of their hopelessness and we read them as knowing what those prophecies are about and we read them as knowing that they've been fulfilled right when isaiah starts to talk about the fact that there will come a son who will be the messiah we know that he's actually come. They don't. But there are these prophecies. And then we get to Matthew 1. If you ever started to read the Gospel of Matthew, you get discouraged right away because the first chapter is just this laundry list of genealogy. And who doesn't love good at genealogy? You ever open the Bible and you start reading that, you know, and the father of him, who was the father of him, who was the father of him, and you're like, this is riveting stuff. But here's the thing, the genealogy is significant because what it does is it shows us how from Abraham to David, the line was solid, and then from David all the way to the birth of Christ, the line stays solid. You can see who was the son of David and the son of him 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 him who was Joseph, right? And the rights of the firstborn, Jesus, even though Jesus wasn't the blood son of Joseph, right? We think about things as heir rights and first rights. The first son of Joseph is the one whom the lion carries through, who gets the, the inheritance and all these things in that time. And so when Jesus comes, he is born of the line of David. And by the way, he's born in the same exact place in Bethlehem. Right? He's born as a nobody, just like David was a nobody. The similarities between how Jesus functions and how he came and and David, there's just so much little things that, so many little things that line up. And so what we have in David is yet another type of Christ. And Jesus is 
greater than David. Well, how so? How exactly is he greater? Well, number one, Jesus is the greater shepherd than David, right? David was a shepherd. He was good at taking care of sheep. He eventually became king and he was shepherding a group of people. But Jesus is the one who shepherds us from all evil. He is the one who protects us, right? Not just in a limited, finite way, but to the fullest extent. Jesus protects us from the death, from the sting of death as a result of our sin by going to the cross and dying for us. He is the better shepherd. Jesus is the far better substitute, right? David would continuously put himself in harm's way for the sake of God's people, but Jesus does it in an ultimate way, by dying and paying the price. Jesus is the better son of Bethlehem. David became great. He was a nobody who became king. But David became king because God made him so. Jesus became king because it was his birthright. Because he earned it. The only one ever to earn it. You can't earn it. I can't earn it. No one that has ever lived can earn it, but Jesus did. Jesus is the better son. Jesus has a bigger kingdom. David was in charge of one group of people on this earth. Jesus was in charge and shepherding all people. He came and died for anyone who might put their faith and trust and hope in him. And Jesus' kingdom... And here's the big one, is not temporary, but eternal. David's reign died with him. Solomon kept it going, but eventually, right, that kingdom just ended. Jesus is the king with a kingdom that shall have absolutely no end. It's not just one generation or two or three, it will last forever. And that actually is the greatest source of our hope. Jesus is the one who will never fail. We don't have to wonder, well, it's great that Jesus is our king. We will march with him. We will be under him. Well, but what happens when he's no longer around? Because he's not like man. He was always going to be around. His kingdom is established and will last forever. We do not have to wonder about what comes next. Because there is no next. In every conceivable way, the kingdom of God and the kingdom that Jesus will reign over is far superior to David who was hailed as the best king to ever have lived in the face of the earth and a man after God's own heart. Everything we can conceive about the wonder and beauty of it was to have that kingdom established gets surpassed by what Jesus has done and will do for us as his people. It's the greatest joy we find. He was raised from death and conquered sin in the grave, and now he sits on the throne. He is the ruler that Israel has originally cried out for. See, when they asked for a king and God gave them one, what what they didn't know that God did know is that he was already working through the history to bring them the king. His reply was, yeah, I'll give you a king. You just wait. You think David's great? You should see what I have coming in a couple years. There's a king that will come that you can't even imagine the rule of and how majestic and how wonderful and how freeing it will be. And he will come once and conquer death and and eventually he will come again and conquer it once and for all. That's what we really hope for. And we have to remember that when we sit here on Christmas Eve, 
A lot of focus gets spent on that birth. We talk about the stable and the conditions and the animals and the magi and all of the things that unfold in this scene right here. But what we don't talk about is the ultimate aim. Why did this all happen? So that he could die as a lowly servant of humanity and eventually come back as king. I have news for you. The second time Jesus comes when he returns, it's not going to look like this. A lot of people are going to be shocked that they're not getting fluffy, happy Jesus. I know that sounds funny, but people think that. Jesus is going to come back all gentle with his perfectly flowing, coiffed hair and just reach out and touch all the little children. No, Jesus is going to come back as a conquering king. And he's going to deal evil. It's final blow. And if you're not under him, if you're not with him, it is not going to be a pleasant day. But if you are, oh, it'll be majestic. We get a picture of what it looks like afterwards in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. This is the aftermath, so to say. You ever have the movie where they have the massive battle and then the people win the battle and you just get to see the aftermath? Right? The joyousness that comes and the freedom that has just been won. Right? Here's the aftermath of our final story. It's almost hard to read this without getting choked up to some degree, right? Then I saw a new heaven. And a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. The pain of today has passed away. The struggle of our lives has passed away. The strife that we have with people has passed away, right? And there's no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard this loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people. And he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. That's the real goal. It's not that we just come here and we look at a cross and we worship and we say, thank you that we don't have to die, that we have fire insurance from hell when we breathe our last breath. It's that the real aim is that when he comes back as king, that God again gets to dwell with us. There will be a time when each and every one of us under Christ will actually get to walk in step with the God who created you. You will get to be with him like Adam and Eve were in the garden before sin. You will get to talk to him and ask him questions and be in his presence. Pain-free, strife-free, anger-free, depression-free. All that stuff's gone. What's he say? He'll wipe away every tear from our eyes. No more death. No mourning, no crying, no pain. The old order of things is gone. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And that is Jesus, the conquering king, right? who is in every way better, in every way better than David ever was. And so this is the reign for which we ought to long. When we think of Advent and our hope and our anticipation, that's what we're looking forward to. Our faith and hope don't lie in elected leaders, kings and emperors. Our entire hope is in the promise that God made to David and kept by sending his son. And last week I asked you to think about who your priest is. Who do you go to for comfort in your day to day? Today I'm going to ask you to consider who is your king? What does a king primarily do? He rules. Right? Who rules you? We all say Jesus, right? 
But think about this this week. Who actually rules you? Is it him? Is he the basket you're putting your eggs in? Right? Whose kingdom are you going to swear allegiance to? The kingdom of the world or the kingdom of the ultimate king who surpasses all others? Right? He's not going to be your servant when he comes back. He's not going to be your genie. He's going to be your king. That's the only relationship that, that you have as a choice. Jesus isn't going to be your homeboy. Remember as a youth group, going and seeing these hats, people had these trucker hats of Jesus is my homeboy. I don't think so. Jesus will be your king and nothing else. That's your choice. You can get under his rule or you can get out of the way. Right? As Jim Collins says, get on the bus or stay off the bus. <laughs> but that's going to be your choice. Are you going to allow him in this season and the rest of your life to rule and reign in your heart above all others? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you that you are our king. Lord, we acknowledge and admit that as sinful beings, we cannot rule ourselves, though we try. We've made every attempt possible to rule ourselves or to elect people that we put our faith in to rule us, and Lord, it gets us nowhere. And those things aren't unimportant, Lord. You've given us leaders, but forgive us that when we have sinned and made them the ultimate thing, when it's you. Lord, we ask that as we go out and forth this week that we might remember who we are ruled by and that we would submit ourselves to that rule and to that reign. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care for us. And thank you that you sent your son to be the ultimate king because we need it. We pray that we might live that way as we go out this week. We love you and praise you. And all his people said,